Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again uh, for today. We thank you for bringing us back to this place, your place. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the many promises and blessings that it gives to us that we can hold on to and trust in. And Lord, we also thank you for uh, its instruction. We thank you that your word is living and active, and it cuts us to the quick, and it, it gets into the deepest parts of us, into the, the, all the nooks and crannies of our lives. Lord, we, we pray that we would hold nothing back from you, that we would surrender every nook and cranny of our lives uh, to your transformation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a story reported on about this time uh, last year that described the extremely unlikely return of a family heirloom. In May of 2018, a Waikiki, Hawaii resident named John Abila was snorkeling off the shore in the hopes of finding buried treasure. What he did find was treasure, but not exactly what he may have been expecting. While snorkeling on this certain day, Abila stumbled upon a 14-karat gold cross medal with the inscription, Alexander Morrison, 1932, St. Agnes Choir. Abila posted a picture of the medal on the Facebook page, <laughs> Stolen Stuff Hawaii, hoping to find the original owner, and the post immediately went viral. Around the same time, a man named Sandy Morrison, at the time 70 years old, saw the pictures on the same Facebook page and immediately broke down with emotion. You see, Sandy's father, Alexander, had deceased, and at age 18, Sandy had taken the medal from his mother's jewelry box as it was the only material link he had between him and his father. Around the same time, Sandy had gone vacationing in Hawaii, went surfing in Waikiki, got hit by a passing catamaran, and the metal broke free from the chain that he was wearing around his neck. Sandy would believe the priceless heirloom would be lost forever. Fifty-one years later, there was his father's medal staring back at him on a Facebook page. Fifty-one years later. Since this was such a newsworthy story, the Facebook page Abila posted the medal on started a GoFundMe so Sandy could fly out to Waikiki, meet the man who found the medal, and have it personally returned to him. Sandy told one outlet that he would be keeping the medal safe in a glass box next to a picture of his late father. About the experience, Abila commented, I'm so proud that I got the cross back. It just makes me proud of myself that he's happy and I'm happy. Now we're friends forever. To Abila, the cross medal had some value because it was 14 karat gold, but to Sandy Morrison, the medal meant the entire world to him. So much so that I would bet that if Abila wanted a reward for the medal, Sandy would have given anything to get that back. In a similar way, we as individual humans made in the image of God mean a certain amount to our loved ones. We love each other. But to God, we mean everything. And so much so that he sent his son to pay the highest price to redeem us and bring us back into his family. So what does that mean to us? 
How then do we view ourselves and our bodies? How much does that affect what we do with our lives and with the bodies that Jesus died a torturous death to redeem? The first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the defective understanding. The Corinthians had a defective understanding of what Paul had been talking about and had told them. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you didn't, that's all right. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to it. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor. Look in the table of contents. We're uh, going to be in chapter 6, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. And we read in verse 12 and 13, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. According to one biblical scholar, these phrases of all things are permissible, or all things are lawful, and food is for the stomach and stomach for food, were apparently a couple of phrases that the Corinthians were spouting off to mask their sinful behavior and especially their sexual immorality. We have talked extensively about how many of the Corinthian believers had excused the grievous sin that was being committed by the man who was sleeping with his father's wife and probably excusing other forms of sexual immorality with a gross misunderstanding of spiritual freedom. They believed that since Jesus already died for their sins, they were sealed for eternity by the Holy Spirit, which is true, but they misunderstood that to believe that they could then do whatever they wanted to in their earthly life. Since Paul was known for his messages of the weakness of the Mosaic law and its salvific power, many, including many in the Corinthian church, misunderstood that to mean that the whole thing could just be tossed out the window. That misunderstanding of spiritual freedom was summed up in their bumper sticker saying of all things are lawful or permissible. The Corinthians, as we've already seen them being very good at, were taking the relationship that believers in Jesus now have with the law one step too far. We've seen as we've been working our way through this letter that they were masters at that. They were very good at that. Taking something that Paul had told them and taking it one step too far. Paul explained this new relationship to the believers in the church at Rome by saying, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But what was Paul's point there? Paul's point was that when Jesus died on the cross, he put to death the curse connected to not obeying the law perfectly. That's what he put to death. He had this section from the law in mind when he wrote these words. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then there's a whole list of curses that follow that verse. But Paul's point in Romans 7 is that Jesus dying on the cross also put to death the curse connected to not obeying the law perfectly because he had. Now, do you see how that would be very tempting 
to take one step further and say, well, if there's no longer a curse for obeying the law perfectly, why should we follow it at all? And that's exactly the line of reasoning the Corinthians followed. But Paul's, Paul focuses uh, in verses 12 through 13 of our, in our passage this morning on what he ends Romans 7, 4 with, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In other words, Paul says our focus is not on the negative aspect of the death of the curse of the law, that is, in seeing how much we can get away with now, for that was not the point of Jesus dying on the cross. Aside from our salvation, Jesus died on the cross so that we raise to new spiritual life with him in order to live the rest of our lives bearing as much spiritual fruit for God's glory as possible. We should be focusing on that positive aspect of the death of the curse of the law. That's the real definition of spiritual freedom. Being freed to give the most glory to God with our lives. So he says in verse 12, all things may be permissible for me in a sense because I'm no longer under the law's curse and I won't lose my salvation no matter the sins I still commit, but that's not the point. The point is not on what I may think I can still get away with. The point is what is most glorifying to God and the most profitable for me spiritually and physically as well as what is most profitable for the kingdom of God. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 12 that yes, he's no longer under the curse of the law, but that he's not using that as an excuse to be mastered by any temptation or addiction because he already has a master. That master was not calling him to be ruled over by any human urge, desire, or obsession, but to only follow him. That was the only uh, rule. As we'll see in a second, the Corinthians excused that, since they were no longer under the law's curse for disobedience, that they could act on whatever human urge or desire befell them whenever they wanted. In verse 12, Paul is telling them, no, you only have one master. You do not need to, you can't, and you mustn't follow any other sinful human desire or urge. You've been freed from the other forces that threaten to master you because they want to destroy you in order for you to follow your new pure master. As we talked about last week, Paul summed up the Corinthians' lack of concern for all the sins that characterize the unbelieving world and condemned world, especially the sexual ones, by calling the Corinthians in a positive way to live out their transformed life. Paul then carries on that positive focus by calling out the absurdity of their excuses and describing the why of what new life God was calling them to. So like I just said, Paul says in verse 13, yes, in the technical sense, God created us so that when our stomachs feel hungry, we feed them to satisfy that hunger. But you, can, you cannot extend that line of reasoning to every physical urge our bodies have, especially, especially the immorally sexual ones. Here's why. 
both the feeling of hunger and the need to satiate that hunger will be done away with when Jesus comes back for us. So don't use that as an excuse to satiate every physical desire because that doesn't even make theological sense, is what Paul is telling the Corinthians. And here's the why about all of that. The why behind what we talked about last week and the why of what we're talking about today. You will never lose your physical body. It will be glorified when Jesus comes back for us, but you will always have some kind of connection with your physical body. Paul will write to the Corinthians in the same letter, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, if we want to get a somewhat, somewhat of an idea of what connection our physical bodies will have with our glorified bodies, who can we look at? We can look at Jesus. When Jesus presented himself to his disciple, Thomas, following his resurrection, what did he still have? He still had his physical scars. Thomas touched them, and it was enough for him to believe that who was standing before him really was the resurrected Messiah. Paul makes this clear connection in verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So Paul notes in verses 13 and 14, because our physical bodies will have some kind of connection with our glorified bodies, they are not ours. Do you see that? Do you see that connection? Because our physical bodies will have some kind of connection with our glorified bodies, our physical bodies are not ours. Jesus died and rose again to redeem every part of us for himself. Yes, our souls, our spiritual selves, but also our physical selves. His blood paid for all of it. He bought our souls and he will raise our physical bodies from the dead when he comes back for us. As such, he says in verse 13 that our bodies are not to do with as we please fulfilling what we know to be immoral desires. We can't have it both ways. We can't look forward to Jesus raising us from the dead at the rapture and reuniting our physical and now glorified bodies with those souls and thinking we have any jurisdiction over those bodies any longer. Instead, our bodies have a new calling, a new purpose, and a new fulfillment. That calling purpose and fulfillment is that our bodies are now Jesus's, meant to obey him, not our human nature, and certainly not our immoral desires. While that sounds like a bullying tactic by Jesus, think of it, think, think of this way as you would think of your kids or grandkids. When you have kids, you don't have the mentality, they're my kids, and I'll tell them what to do over and over again, but really I'm just going to let them do and chase after whatever they want to do at whatever time they want to do it. That's not the way you think about your kids, right? How successful do you think that would be as a parenting strategy? You would have kids who would eat nothing but cookies and never go to bed. 
No, oppositely, you parent them. You give them rules and a schedule and guidance. Why? Because you want to bully them into just doing what you want them to do? No, because you love them and you parent them this way to protect them and raise them. That's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians about. Jesus loved you so much that he died on the cross for you in order for you to be brought into God's family and start being protected and raised by God himself. You can't have it both ways. We talked about the Corinthians' defective understanding of their own bodies, and now we're going to talk about the distinct connection. Even though Paul was speaking somewhat in generalities, even referring to himself in verses 12 through 14, the Corinthians most likely knew where he was going with what he's talking about. In verse 15, those suspicions are confirmed. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. There's that phrase again that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Do you not know? That's what he starts verse 15 with. Again, referencing the basic truths that the Corinthians should have already known about. Perhaps truths that Paul himself had already taught them. Again, as, as it has been throughout this whole general section, from the beginning of chapter 5 all the way through to this point, the do you not know phrase is in connection with the Corinthians' sexual immorality. As has been referenced by one biblical scholar, the believer's future life should directly affect our present life. Earlier, Paul reminded the Corinthians that they would co-rule with Jesus in his hierarchical millennial kingdom and had presently relinquished that responsibility in not judging disputes amongst each other, but handing those cases to the secular and pagan world, the very same world that would not even enter the millennial kingdom, for they would be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. In the same way, the Corinthians were not making the connection between their future lives, that of Jesus reuniting their raised and glorified physical bodies with their souls at the rapture, and their present lives, that of seeing those same physical bodies as Jesus's already and using them as such. As Paul was reminding them in verse 15, we can't have the blessing of being members of Christ's body, that is the church, and then joining those members to what Paul refers to as a prostitute. Now Paul could very well be specifically rebuking those believers, both Gentile and Jewish Christians, who thought their spiritual freedom afforded them the opportunity to continue to sleep with prostitutes. In fact, pagan temple prostitution was encouraged as part of the idolatrous spiritual experience, what Jesus had called them out of. Paul could very well be specifically rebuking, rebuking this act that was not only sexual immorality, but clearly outright idolatry. The rest of the passage, however, expands the reader's understanding that Paul is not just referring to that behavior. As we've talked about, elsewhere in Scripture, the root word for a fornicator or prostitute is the same word that's used for sexual immorality. 
That word carried with it the meaning of selling off one's body as in prostitution, but it can also be understood as a general selling off of one's body to another without the commitment of marriage. That understanding is clearly seen in what Paul says in verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Paul refers to God's blueprint for marriage and, and sex as found in Genesis 1 through 2. That of sex created for marriage between one man and one woman and sex only created for that blueprint. Why? We touched on this last week and we'll get more into it in the next chapter. But the why is because of its power. Within marriage, sex is a powerful means of bringing a husband and wife closer and closer together, becoming one in every way, as Genesis 2 tells us. Outside of marriage, it can be powerfully destructive. And Paul notes here why it's so powerful. You hear the phrase, it's just sex, what's the big deal? So many times that perhaps we've become numb to it. That phrase is obviously trying to promote the idea that sex is merely a physical act. The phrase is apparently, tongue-in-cheek, as old as the city of Corinth, and obviously much older than that. But Paul is guided by the Holy Spirit and what he's already said about, uh, read about in the, in the Old Testament, truthfully says, come on, you guys, you know that's not true. Think about it. You know that's not true. In fact, that's why Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, and more specifically, that the two will become one flesh. God's creation of sex was so that it would be powerful in making a husband and wife close in every single way. Because of that, we know that there are also other parts of ourselves that become connected to the other person in that act. Our physical selves, yes, but also our emotional selves and our spiritual selves become one. That's the whole point of it. That's why Paul stresses the spiritual aspect of this so much. That comes out clearly in verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's something much more spiritual about the experience of sexual relations than anyone thinks about or wishes to know. That's why Paul is placing so much emphasis on this. As much as anyone might want to discredit this truth, sex is a spiritually connecting experience between two people. We are identified with and one with Jesus as believers. Just as absurd as it would be for Jesus' body to be sexually connected to a prostitute, we cannot maintain a cognitive dissonance between the physical and spiritual connection between two people and think that it does not directly and profoundly affect both of them at a spiritual level. Like I said, we would get into this week. This is the why for all the sexual why all sexual relationships outside of God's blueprint for sex and marriage in Genesis 2 and affirmed time and time again in the New Testament are sin it's not because God is a bully who wants to ruin everyone's fun and doesn't want to be relevant he knows what he created sex to be he knows because he's the one who made it how powerfully he created it and that he created it to connect all 
of a husband and wife selves, physical, emotional, and spiritual. He created it for two people to become one in every possible way. So we talked about the defective understanding, the distinct connection, what he specifically is referring to here. And now we're going to talk about the definition of purpose. That why explanation directly informs Paul's calling to the Corinthians who thought that sexual immorality wasn't that big of a deal. Verse 18, flee immorality. Two words there, that's a two-word sentence. Flee immorality. Run away from it like Joseph did in the Old Testament. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, what is he talking about there? Jesus summed up the law in two commandments, right? What were they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. When one sexually joins him or herself to someone who isn't their spouse, they're also breaking a third commandment that's really nestled within love your neighbor, love others, and that's love yourself. You can't really love others the way that you love yourself if you're committing sin against yourself. As Paul says, every other sin, whether it's stealing or lying or murder or idolatry, is sinning against God and sinning against someone else. But sexual immorality is also sinning against God and someone else, whether or not they realize it, but also against another person, and that's yourself. That's why being involved with pornography is so dangerous and damaging. What's the number one excuse for engaging with it? What's the big deal? I'm not hurting anyone. Besides the fact that the sex industry destroys thousands of lives and marriages, who are you still sinning against? God and yourself. Not only that, but similar to sexual relations, there's still an emotional and spiritual connection. It's been shown that porn consumption actually physically alters your brain and the way you think and process about things. It's been proven. That's why Jesus declared these words in his famous Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's just as much of a sin against God and yourself as immoral sexual relations. Paul is not just giving a love yourself message only connected to our human nature and pride for that would just lead to sexual immorality again. No, he's focused on the higher calling and purpose for our physical bodies. Once again, that our Jesus is now. We are to love ourselves not as some egotistical endeavor but because of what our physical bodies now have the purpose of. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Whereas our physical bodies were once just bodies mastered by sin, only following our sinful human desires in whatever context we wanted, condemned to be raised to eternal torture and banishment from God, they have been redeemed and they have been given a new purpose. They are now holy temples of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you see yourself that way? 
That is an awesome calling and an awesome responsibility, isn't it? It simply cannot be taken lightly or treated flippantly. And this purpose was not given by God lightly or flippantly. It was wrought in torture, humiliation, excruciating pain, and the eternal father having to turn his back on his own son in his greatest time of need. It was the highest price that could ever be paid so that our physical bodies, which will be glorified by Jesus at the rapture, could be repurposed. It's very similar to a building so riddled with problems and so structurally unsound that it's no longer fit to have any other purpose other than to be condemned and destroyed and then a new uh, developer coming in and turning into a glorious and beautiful building with a tremendous new purpose. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we trust that for our salvation and our eternity, we have been rebuilt into beautiful works of art. We have now and are now being constructed into a beautiful temple whose purpose is to house the presence of Almighty God just as the great and glorious temple Solomon built was to behold. That is the why of why we mustn't use that temple for any other purpose than to glorify God himself. Paul clearly comes to that conclusion in verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, and he can't can't be any clearer here. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The reality of the matter is that we cannot take what God has redeemed and use it to fulfill our own selfish and sinful desires, for really what that does is that it desecrates the temple that God has transformed our bodies into. That's really what's going on. The price we know Jesus paid in order to turn our physical bodies, which he will glorify in the future, into temples of Almighty God, as well as that purpose for these temples, should drive us to one conclusion. It should drive us to take the light of Jesus and shine it into every nook and cranny of those temples, uncovering any and every corner of sin we still haven't repented of and haven't started to take steps to correct. It must drive us to see ourselves in this way when faced with any and every temptation against Jesus' temple's newly given purpose. When faced with a temptation, especially in the area of sexual immorality, will we desecrate the temple? Are we grateful enough for the price paid and the newly given purpose as beautiful temples to keep them clean and glorifying to God what their new purpose is? In connection with our opening story, we have a certain worth amongst other human beings, especially our loved ones. But Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to pay whatever price there was. Whatever price there was. The highest price that could be paid. The impossible price. So that he could give us our new purpose as temples of the indwelling spirit. How does that now change the way we see our spiritual and physical selves? 
We have been given a beautiful new purpose for our physical bodies. Paid for with an impossibly high price. Therefore, let us all, as the body of Christ, obey the commandment that this truth logically leads to at the end of verse 20. And this is what we'll close with. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. They're challenging words. They strike us at the very core. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the new purpose you have given to us. We thank you for being willing and following through on paying that impossibly high price to give us this new purpose. Lord, I pray that we would take this seriously, that we would not sweep it under the rug, try to forget about it, try to set it aside or push it down, try not to think about it. But Lord, we, we, I pray that you would allow it to consume us. I pray that you would drive us to shine the light of you into every nook and cranny of these temples and see if there's any, any other area of sin that we haven't surrendered to you and taken steps to correct. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much that you would pay that price to, to give us the opportunity to make us become a part of your family. Lord, I pray that that gratefulness that we have and that love for you, for doing that for us, would drive us to see ourselves as holy temples of your spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.